The Bradford Exchange presents the Classic Radio Theater with your host, Carl Amari. Countdown for blast off. X minus one. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. Richard Diamond, private detective. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Suspense. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Dragnet. We offer you escape. Kraft presents the Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. The Jack Benny Program. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 7 of the Classic Radio Theater. Each week, the Bradford Exchange and participating sponsors bring you three hours of the Classic Radio Theater, featuring programming from the golden age of radio. This time, we'll hear two half-hour episodes of Escape. We'll begin after this short break. Escape was radio's leading anthology series of high adventure, airing on CBS from 1947 until 1954. The series' well-remembered opening, as intoned sometimes by Paul Fries and other times by William Conrad, was Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Following the opening theme, a second announcer, usually Roy Rowan, would add Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Many story premises, both originals and adaptations, involved a protagonist in dire life-or-death straits. Actors on the series included the West Coast's best supporting actors and occasionally featured a movie star in the lead role. It's time now for the first of two Escape Radio episodes. The first story is an excellent drama about three escaped convicts on a raft and their savage companion, a cannibal. Here's the fourth man on escape. Escape. Escape tonight to a raft in the South Pacific. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations presents Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson. This, the last of the summer series, is The Fourth Man by John Russell. Noumea in the South Pacific. To a generation of French criminals, a word to be uttered in the same terrified breath with Devil's Island. The penal colony at Noumea, where the cutthroats, garroters, and sadists from the dregs of French society were sent to a living death. Tonight, we invite you to escape from Noumea, in John Russell's The Fourth Man. The raft stood to open sea. A mat of pandanus leaves served for its sail and a paddle of wood for its helm. It was woven of reeds and bamboo sticks lashed upon triple rows of bladders. And it carried four men. Three of them sat huddled together at the far end. Their bodies were blackened with dried blood and the hair upon them was long and matted. They wore only the rags of blue convicts' uniforms. On wrist and ankle, they carried their mark, the dark and wrinkled stain of the manacles. 
There was DuBose, doctor, man of the world, murderer. Friends, the thing is done. And Fenneru, forger, ladies' man, weakling, coward. Yes, we've escaped. And the one known as the parrot, thief and cutthroat. So far, so good. <laughs> and by the way of celebration, gentlemen, may I offer you... Cigarettes? Cigarettes? Oh. <laughs> Doctor, you're a marvel, a magician. Look at them. White and fresh as though they just came from the package. How did you do it? Oh, every six months there are about 75 escapes from Numea, and not more than one succeeds. Ours would be that one I knew. And so, three weeks ago, I bribed the night guard for these very cigarettes <laughs> so that we might sit here, my friends, as we are doing and celebrate. I want a light. A light for the pet. <laughs> our doctor's a wonder. He thinks of everything. He gives us cigarettes, matches, and our freedom. Wait till you've got your two feet on a pavement again. That'll be the time to sound off about freedom. <sighs> to wear starched collars again. To stroll with a girl, clean and fresh from her bath. Down the Place de la Concorde, the Rue de Rivoli. Suppose we get a storm. It's not the season of storms. Just the same. Suppose we get a storm. Perroquet, my friend. <laughs> you must not be so impatient. Remember, we were convicts back there, festering in oblivion. Now we are men raised from the dead. Suppose we get a storm. Uh, you've got a gift of speech, Doctor. But where's the ship that was going to meet us here? This is the day as agreed. It will meet us. The wind will blow us to China if we keep on. We can't lie any closer to shore. There's a government launch at Torian. And I doubt if the native trackers have given us up. <laughs> Careful, Parrot. The natives will eat you yet. <laughs> I've heard about that. Is it true, Doctor, that they'll keep all the runaways they can capture to fatten on? Oh, they prefer the reward still. I I doubt if they've entirely lost the habit of cannibalism. <laughs> piece by piece, Parrot. First they'll sample you. Then they'll make a stew out of your brains. Oh, they won't miss a thing. Shut up, Fenneru. The filthy brutes. Oh, I almost forgot. We have one of them with us. The fourth man was steering the raft. He sat crouched in the stern, his body glistening with spray. His huge dark hands held the steering paddle. He was motionless, like an idol, his eyes fixed on the course ahead. The fourth man on the raft. You are looking at a Canuck, my friends. You will see nothing superior, no line of beauty to redeem the low angle of the forehead the knobby joints of the body. Nature has stamped him with the mark of inferiority, and he has set the final seal himself with that twist of bark about his middle, that prong of pig ivory through his nose. Yes, but nonetheless, he's a man, and there is a price on our heads. He could be taking us where he likes. Calm yourself, Fenneru. <laughs> this is a very simple animal, an infant, really. Does that mean he couldn't double-cross us? It does. He is bound by his duty. I made my bargain with his chief up the river, and this one is sent to deliver us on board our ship. 
That's the only interest he has in us. And he'll do it? He will. That is the nature of the native. I don't trust him, not for a minute. The brute. The animal. You! It's you I'm talking about, you dirty brute. Save your breath, Parrot. He speaks no language, only a few noises, a few signs. I don't feel right on the same raft with that. Well, burn yourselves up in the sun if you like, but me... I'm going to crawl under a mat and get some sleep. Yes, we should all sleep a little, conserve ourselves. <laughs> and when we awake, our ship will be here. Our saucy little topsail schooner, a mass standing out against the sky, and we'll be on our way to France. Yes, sleep, my friends. The two younger convicts dozed under the heat of the day, but not the doctor. He stood once again to sweep the skyline under his shaded hand. His plan had been so careful, so precise. He had counted absolutely on meeting the ship, a small schooner, one of those flitting half-piratical traders of the Copra Islands that can be hired, like cabs in a dark street, for any sinister enterprise. And there was no ship. And there was no crossroads where one might sit and wait. Uh, uh, good morning, Doctor. It's afternoon, Fenerul. Oh, yes, so it is. I slept like a corpse. Hey, where's the ship, Doctor? It was going to be here when we woke up. It will be. I'm thirsty. I'm dying with thirst. So we all, Fenerol. Where's the flask? I'm roasted in the sun. You'll just have to roast some more. This crew is put on rations. What are you talking about? Where's that water? I have it here. So you have. Do you think it's yours? No. It's ours, Parrot. I want a drink, Doctor. Think a little, Parrot. We have to guard our supplies like reasonable men. We don't know how long we may be floating here. Oh, so that's how you talk now. You don't know how long. But you were sure enough when we started. I'm still sure. The ship will come. She cannot stay for us in one spot. She'll be cruising to and fro until she intercepts us. And we must wait. That's good. Wait. And in the meantime, what? Fry here in this heat, our tongues hanging out, while you deal us out water drop by drop? Perhaps. No. A man doesn't live who can feed me with a spoon. Unless you would die very speedily, we must guard our water. We can only do our best with what we have. All right, Doctor. Do your best. Give me a drink. You, you may have your share, of course. But be warned. When it's gone, don't come to us, to Fenero and me. Yes, what's fair is fair. My drink. Very well. Oh, a thimbleful. One thimble. This way we should have enough for three days, maybe more, with equal shares among the three of us. <laughs> That's right. There are only three of us. You, uh, 
You were thinking of him, Fenero. Of our pilot? He looks somewhat like us, doesn't he? But his body has never known clothes. His feet, shoes. His heart has never known the swelling that comes with feelings of love or beauty. His mind has never known a single thought. <laughs> Look at us three, gentlemen. You, Fenero, a forger. You, Parrot, a thief. And I, Dr. Dubose, of Paris and Marseille, a murderer. And yet, we are civilized men. And this is a savage animal. And our provisions are for civilized men only. The three men awoke to the second day on the raft. They looked and saw the far round horizon and the empty desert of the sea and their own long shadows that slipped slowly before them over its smooth, slow heaving. The land had sunk away from them in the night. The trap had been sprung. As the savage sun kindled upon them with the power of a burning glass, a calm fell, an absolute calm. The air hung, waited. The sea heaved and fell in polished undulations. And the sun shone, driving in under their eyelids like white-hot splinters. They crawled to the shelter of their mats, gasping, shriveling. And the water, the world of water, was slack and thick as oil. Oh, oh how lonely it is. Dr. DuBose. Yes, Parrot? Look around you. What do you mean? Go on, look around. What do you see? I see water, Parrot, and the horizon. What? Nothing else. Oh, don't you see a ship? A saucy little schooner? Those were your words. Well, where is it? Why don't you see it? It will come. Oh, will it comfort us to be dead when it comes? You, you say that you count on your friends, but suppose they leave you to rot here. Leave Parrot and me to rot here. That would be a joke, eh, Doctor? To wait for a ship that will never come? It will come. My friends will not fail me. Why? How do you know? How can you be so sure? There's a safety vault in Paris full of papers to be opened at my death. Those papers contain confessions. Now, gentlemen, my friends will not fail me. Uh, Parrot. Uh. A moment ago, you asked me what I saw. Well? There was something I neglected. What's that? I see a Canuck on this raft with us. He does not join us. He does not look at us. He sits on his heels in the way of the native, with his arms hugging his knees. He sits at the stern, motionless under the shattering sun, gazing out into, into vacancy. Whenever I raise my eyes, I see nothing else. Only this Canuck. He, he seems to be enjoying himself quite well. I was thinking so myself. The cannibal. The savage. He does not seem to suffer. What's going on in his brain? What does he dream of there? He looks as though he hates us. A dirty rat. Maybe, maybe he's waiting for us to die. Maybe he's waiting for the reward. 
At least he wouldn't starve on the way home. He could deliver us piece by piece. How does he do it, Doctor? Hasn't he any feeling? I've been wondering. It, it may be that his fibers are tougher. His nerves... But we've are... had water, and he hasn't. And yet, we see his skin. It's moist and fresh. And his belly, fat as a football. Don't tell me this savage is thirsty. Is there any way he could steal our supplies? Certainly not. Suppose he has his own supplies... Hidden. What? We'll see. Search the rat. Come on, we'll learn his secret. Here, look under the mat. Tear it apart. I'll push him aside. Anything there? No. Gentlemen, no. gentlemen. We were mistaken. He has nothing hidden. You're wrong about him, Doctor. He can, you say, he has no understanding. There's one thing he can understand. Hey! Parrot, parrot, not so much. That's enough. There's come. Uh, that'll teach you. Not so chipper now, are you? Not so happy with your luck. That'll make you feel... Well, Parrot, you feel better now, don't you? Superior. Come back, my friends. Come back under the mats. The glare of the sun is not so bad there. Oh, idiots. What's the matter with our parrot now? Idiots. Why do we look and look? The schooner can't help us now. If we're becalmed, then they are too. Doctor, is that true? Yes. We must hope for a breeze first. Well, then why didn't you tell us we trust you? Why do you keep on playing out the farce? You are wise, Doctor. You are very wise. Put down the knife, Parrot. You know things we don't, and you keep them to yourself. All right, but be careful. If you think you'll use your wisdom to get the best of us, be careful, Doctor, because I still have the knife. <laughs> And so the days dragged by, the second, the third. And now it was the fourth day, and still there was no breeze. And still there was no ship. Oh, Doctor. Yes? Uh, what do you... what do you stare at? At him. At him, the native. The Kanak. Why? Look at him. And look at us. We are dying. Our powers are ebbing. And him? Naked, wild, brutish. He has yet to give the slightest sign of complaint or weakness. Doctor, is this a man or a fiend? A man. It is a man. A miracle. It is a man and a very poor and wretched example of a man. You'll find no lower type anywhere. Look at his cranial angle, the high ears, the heavy bones of his skull. He's scarcely above an ape. And what? He has a secret. A secret? But we see him. Every move he makes, every minute. What chance has he for a secret? Absurd. 
Here are we three, children of the century, products of civilization. And here is this savage who belongs before the Stone Age. Is he to win this struggle? <laughs> Absurd. What kind of secret? I can't say. Perhaps some method of breathing. Some strange posture he uses to cheat the sensations of the body. Such things are known among primitive peoples. Known and jealously guarded. Like the properties of certain drugs. The uses of hypnotism. Who knows? We can know. We can find out. Would you ask him? Useless. He would not tell. Why should he? We scorn him. We give him no share with us. We abuse him. And so he falls back upon his own expedients. They are the means by which he has survived from the depth of time. By which he may yet survive when all our wisdom is dust. There are a number of ways of learning secrets. I know them all. It would be useless. How could he stand any torture you might invent? You saw how he behaved before? No, no, that's not the way. Oh, listen to my way. I'm tired of all this talk. You say he's a man. All right, then he has blood in his veins. At least we could drink. No, it would be too hot. It would be salt. Well, kill him then and throw him over the side. Let's be rid of the thing. We gain nothing. Then what do you want? I want to beat him. That's what I want, to beat him at the game. For our own sakes, for our racial pride, we must. To outlast him, to prove ourselves his masters. Watch him. Watch him closely, my friends. Watch. I'll watch all right, my good doctor. I'm not sleeping anymore. And leave you alone with that bottle. The bottle. The bottle. I've been meaning to discuss our rations with you. Have you? We're running very short. I'm afraid we must cut down again. And what are we cut to? Half a thimbleful. No. We must keep our wits. I say no. All right. Then we'll put it to a vote. You say no. I say yes. Fenero. Yes. Yes, anything, but give me mine now. Then it's half a thimbleful for Monsieur Fenero. Oh. Your share, Fenero. More, more, I'll die. Give me more. No more today. You must, you must, Doctor. No more today. Look, a ship, a ship. Oh, at last. Where, where is it? I don't see any ship. It's a trick. Look, Fenero, he has the bottle. You dirty thief. <sighs> Look at him. You killed him with that oar. Uh, what about the bottle? <laughs> yes, there's some left. You caught him just in time. And you caught the bottle just in time. It seems I did. There is no ship. There will be no ship. We are done. Because of you and your dirty promises that brought us here. Doctor... Liar! Fool! Don't come any closer. Unless you want this flask broken over your head. No. 
Oh, I wouldn't want that. Why, just think, Parrot. Why should you and I fight? We can see this trouble through and win, yet... This calm can't last forever. Besides, there will be only two of us to divide the water now. Yes, that's true, isn't it? Fenerokani leaves us his share, an inheritance. All right. I'll take mine now. My share. Right now, if you please. Later, we'll see. So be it. Your share. Uh, many thanks. And now, Fenerul's share. To me, please. As you say. And now, another. Uh, another good doctor. Three. That's enough, Parrot. Uh, no, doctor. It's not enough. Now I'll take the rest. Parrot! Stop my arm! I'll kill you if you don't let go. Thank you. You see, I have manners, haven't I? And I have wisdom, too. Because I fooled a very wise man. I toast you, Doctor. The best man wins. That was a bright idea of yours. The best... <laughs> so... So the best man wins, eh, Pat? <laughs> you forgot I'm a doctor, didn't you? You you forgot that a man cannot go without water for four days, then drink his fill and live through it, huh? <laughs> go on, Parrot. Gasp out your worthless life <laughs> while I laugh. Yes, the best man always wins, Parrot. The best man... <laughs> so, best man wins, yes, Doctor. You forgot my knife, didn't you? Forgot me lying at your feet. Gave me up for dead, didn't you? But now it is I, Fenerou, who will outlast the two of you. Yes, my good doctor. The best man always wins. Fenerou, you fool. The water, it's... Running out. Captain, 
Long boats back, sir. All right, send Marteau in. He's right here, sir. Bad luck, sir. The raft was here all the time, not ten miles away from us. Ah, that calm. Well, where are they, the passengers? Oh, we're too late. They're all dead. All dead, huh? Yes. One stabbed to death, another skull crushed, the other fried by the sun. They're all dead. Well, then. All the better. Of course, there's nothing to feed. Yeah, but how are you going to... Ah, hogsheads, my friend. The hogsheads in the afterhold. Fill them nicely with brine, and (laughs) there we are. I don't understand. Oh, you're dull, Marto. Very dull. The gentleman's passage is all paid. Before we left Sydney, I contracted to bring back three escaped convicts. (laughs) I'll bring them back. Pickled. So if you'll go back, Marzo, and bring him aboard for the trip, I'll be much obliged. Very well, sir. Oh, there's a fourth man on the raft, Captain. A Kanak. He's still alive. What'll we do with him? A Kanak? <laughs> no word in my contract about any Kanak. Leave him there. He's only a savage. And so Dr. DuBose and Fenneru and the parrot went aboard for the long trip to their beloved Paris their bodies pitching and rolling gently in the huge vats of brine. On the raft, the fourth man raised his head slightly as a wind freshened from the west. He watched until the schooner turned, shaping away for Australia and disappeared over the rim of the horizon. Then he spread his sail of pandanus leaves and headed his raft eastward, back toward New Caledonia, Back toward home. Feeling somewhat dry after his exertion, the native plucked a hollow reed at random from the rushes on his raft. Slowly, lazily, he stretched himself at full length in his accustomed place at the stern. He thrust the reed down deep into one of the bladders underneath the raft and slowly drank his fill of sweet water. He had a dozen such storage bladders remaining, built into the floats at intervals above the waterline, quite enough to last him safely home again. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. The Fourth Man by John Russell was adapted for radio by Irving Ravitch, with Paul Fries as Dr. DuBose, Joe Kearns as Fenaru, and Nestor Piva as Parrot. Bill Johnstone narrated. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fewer. Escape has been presented by the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations. <laughs> Be sure to be with us next Monday night when the Radio Theater returns to the air with Betty Davis and Glenn Ford starring in A Stolen Life. Remember, next Monday evening from 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Lux Radio Theater starts its 14th year over CBS. The play, A Stolen Life. The stars, Betty Davis and Glenn Ford. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That's Escape with the Fourth Man, starring Paul Fries. 
Also heard in the cast, William Johnstone as the narrator, Joseph Kearns and Jeff Chandler, billed as Ira Grossell, which was his birth name, as originally broadcast August 18, 1947. All of the classic radio shows we present on this series are direct from the master recordings. I have more than 100,000 original radio episodes under license from the owners and estates, and we make them available via digital download or on CD through our Classic Radio Club. By joining the Classic Radio Club, you'll receive 10 superior-sounding classic radio shows sent directly to you each month, along with detailed liner notes and photos of the stars. You'll receive your first 10 classic radio episodes for only $1, and you can cancel at any time. To learn more about the Classic Radio Club, log on to ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. I'll have another episode of Escape for you after this short break. Welcome back to the Classic Radio Theater. I'm your host, Carl Amari. It's time now for another dramatic episode of Escape. This is the classic Alexander Wolcott story about a young girl in Paris whose mother has vanished from the face of the earth. Here's the vanishing lady on Escape. The Adventures of Christopher Wells program, formerly scheduled at this time, is now broadcast at a new time on Tuesday evening. Tune in for The Adventures of Christopher Wells next Tuesday and every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You're alone in Paris, unable to speak the language, unable to cope with a gigantic conspiracy which seeks to convince you that you are mad. You are the victim of a plot from which there is no escape. Escape. Produced, directed, and tonight written by William N. Robeson. And carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight we escape to Paris at the time of the Great Exposition and one of the recurring legends of our time in Alexander Wilkett's version of the story of The Vanishing Lady. Another cup of tea, Bruce? Uh, No, thank you, my dear. I just light up my pipe now and have a look at the evening standard. I'd like another, please, Mother. All right, Alice. Uh, uh, uh. Only one sugar, dear. We must watch our figures, you oh. know. <laughs> what nonsense. A growing girl like Alice needs plenty of sugar. <laughs> See, Mother, Daddy approves. Perhaps. But Mother is still boss. Yes, Mother. There's a dear. Mother. Yes, dear. I've been thinking. Yes, dear? I've been thinking about my grandparents. Oh. I know all about Daddy's parents. How Grandfather Stanley commanded a dreadnought at the Battle of Jutland. It was not a dreadnought, Alice. It was a heavy cruiser. Oh, yes. Heavy cruiser. And he got the V.C. And how Grandmother Stanley was a volunteer nurse at Westerl Arch when the Zeppelins came over. And I know about your father, too. And how he died in India from his wounds. And 
how gallant he was at the Kyber Pass, but... Mother? Yes, dear? You've never, never told me anything about Grandmother Winship. Haven't I? No, and I'd... I'd like to know something Bruce. about... Bruce. The child's 16. I think it's time she knew. But, Bruce... And you'd probably feel better to get it off your chest. What, Mother? What is it? Well, my dear, I've never talked about your grandmother because I... I've always half believed that someday, somehow, she would come down our garden walk and... I know it sounds silly and explain where she's been for the last 20 years. Why? What happened to her? I don't know. And I don't suppose I ever will. Cynthia, darling, if it's going to upset no, you... No, Bruce, you're quite right. It would be best to... Get it off my chest, as you put it. As you know, Alice, I was born and brought up in India. And I was about your age when my father was killed in the Khyber campaign. Mother decided to leave India for good and return to her old home in Warwickshire. However, since it was necessary for her to go to Paris to attend to some details of my father's estate, she decided that we should leave the P&O boat in Marseille and proceed by train. You may imagine the timidity with which we two unescorted ladies traveled across France. Without the slightest knowledge of the language, and without indeed assurance that we could find a hotel room in Paris. Though we had telegraphed for reservations for Marseille. You see, the great Paris exposition had just opened, and the city was jammed with visitors from all over the world. You may imagine our relief when we arrived at the Grand Hotel Universel and heard the clerk speak in quite ah, understandable English. Welcome, welcome. You will please to sign the register, air and air. Uh, you have our reservation? Oh, indeed, yes. Most fortunate, madame, that you telegraphed. For I have reserved for you the last room in the house. Oh, I'm so relieved. Yes, Cynthia. You may as well learn now to sign a register for yourself. Oh, yes, Mama. Where do I write? There, in that line. Oh, yes, I see. Voila. You are uh, fatigued from your journey, uh, no? Uh, I shall have the boy show you to your rooms at once. Uh, chasseur, uh, chasseur! Oui, monsieur. Le parpent 342 pour mademoiselle et madame Winship, tout de suite. Uh, bien, monsieur. Uh, this is your baggage, madame? Uh, yes, these six. Uh, le voile bagage, Cindy, il y a six pièces. You'd, you'd best carry the little one with the medicine in it. Yes, maman. Uh, thank you. I'll take that one. Uh, the little red one. Très bien. Uh, this way, ladies. Keep your eye on that porter, Cynthia. I don't trust this Frenchman. Oh, Mama. I don't think he'll make off with our things. Uh, here's the lift. Troisième étage. Troisième. Oh, I do wish we could have gone straight on to Southampton. But you'd only have had to come back across the channel to see the solicitor, Mama. We really saved time this way. I suppose I mean I wish we hadn't come to Paris at all. Such a sinister place. Oh, Mama. Voilà, le troisième. This way, ladies, uh, to the right. Attendez. Eh bien. Uh, 338, 340, 342. Oh, voilà. Entrez, ladies. Thank you. Oh, what a lovely big room. And look, Mama. French windows. And the park out there. Uh, this is uh, no, and thank the square you. with the statues yeah. on it. Merci. Oh, and look thank at the you, river ladies. over there. Those beautiful, beautiful bridges. Oh, Mother, it, it's something out of a book. Yes, my dear. 
That's the trouble with Paris. It's so attractive. But underneath, it's evil. And look at the furniture. The gilt clock. And this lovely marble table. Oh, Mama, everything is so... So French. I'll be very glad to be on my way to where everything's English by this time tomorrow. Now, come away from that window and help me get into something comfortable. There's a dear. Yes, Mama, of course. I don't know when I've been so tired. I just can't seem to catch my... Mama. Mama, what's the matter? Mama! Mama, speak to me. Here. I'll get you up into the bed. There. Now, let me loosen your corset. Here. Here, Mama. Here are the smelling salts. Breathe deeply, darling. Mama. The telephone. I've got to get a doctor. Hello, operator. Will you please send a doctor up to room number... Well, let me see. Number 342. Pardon? Will you please send a doctor to room number 342? A doctor? A doctor? While I waited for the doctor, I did everything I could think of to bring my mother back to consciousness. I massaged her fingers and toes. I put wet cloths on her forehead. I waved the smelling salts under her nose. But she lay silent and white and unmoving like one dead. Only the quick, shallow movement of her breast assured me she was not. And all the time another anxiety possessed me. What if this doctor could not speak English? How should I tell him the circumstances of mother's unexpected fainting? How should I understand his instructions for treatment? I'm sure it was not long, although it seemed like an eternity before he arrived, accompanied by the manager of the hotel. And to my great relief, they both spoke English. The doctor felt Mother's pulse, took her temperature, and did the usual things that doctors do. Then he turned to the tail-coated hotel manager. Hotel français? Pas un mot, vous en êtes sûr? Tout à fait. Alors, je ne peux parler à mon aise. Monsieur, ceci, c'est une affaire très sérieuse. N'ayez pas l'air alarmé lorsque je vous mets au courant. Cette femme est atteinte de la peste. De la peste. Elle n'a qu'une heure à vivre. Je n'ai pas besoin de vous dire... While they talked in this language, I couldn't understand. I looked from one face to the other, trying to read from their expressions how serious my mother's illness was. But they were as casual as though they were ordering dinner. Finally, I could stand it no longer. They must. You must tell me. What is the matter with her? Mademoiselle, your mother is ill, yes. Seriously ill. It is a collapse. Due perhaps to the strain of traveling. Uh, however, a week of, or two of absolute rest A week will... or two? We were to go on to England tomorrow. Well, that would be out of the question. She cannot be moved for at least several days. Right now, she must have a complete rest. The next 24 hours will be critical. Oh, Mama. Poor Mama. No, 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 Mademoiselle, you must not break down too. I need your help. Yes, Doctor. Immediately, I need some medicine. Will you fetch it for me? I... Yes, I but... must not leave your mother for a moment during these critical hours. Here, I will write down this address and a little message to my wife. Your wife? Yes, I have the medicine already prepared at my home. It will be faster to go there for it than to a pharmacy. There are a few chemists who have the ingredients. But couldn't you telephone? Oh, alas, I have no telephone. Well, then, a, a messenger, perhaps. Oh, mademoiselle, you do not know Paris en fait. With the exposition opening, nowhere can you find a reliable messenger. They are all selling uh, souvenirs. No, mademoiselle, you will accomplish the errand more rapidly yourself. Ah, voici l'adresse. Here's the address, 24 bis, rue Val-de-Grasse. 
And here is the message to give to my wife. But I don't know Paris at all. I'm a total stranger here. I'm sure the manager here will uh, give the necessary instructions to the cabbie. Indeed, I will. If mademoiselle is ready... Before I quite knew what was happening, I was seated in a rickety taxicab outside the hotel with the doctor's message clutched in my hand while the hotel manager gave a voluble direction to the cabbie. It is arranged, mademoiselle. Jacques here is one of our most trusted cabbies. He will get you to the doctor's house and back in safety. Oh, thank you so much, sir. And you will look after mother, won't you? Oh, indeed I will. Of that, you may be sure. When we left the hotel, we crossed a huge square with statues around it and turned into a wide avenue which led up a gentle incline, at the top of which was a huge arch. But before long, we turned off to the right into narrower streets. It must have been 20 minutes later when we turned into another wide boulevard, and I saw another huge arch up ahead. Or was it the same arch? Driver! Mademoiselle? Haven't we passed that arch before? Uh, regardez, mademoiselle, voici l'Arc de Triomphe. Là-bas, la Tour Eiffel. Driver, I don't want a sightseeing tour. I want to go to this address directly. Don't you understand? Please, now take me there at once. Uh, en fait, sans mieux. De la patience, mademoiselle. Paris, uh, c'est une grande ville, voyons. Last, we turned into a narrow street and pulled up before a grim grey house. The blue enamel sign on the wall read number 24 Beast. I jumped out of the cab almost before it stopped, rushed up the three stone steps and pulled at the brass bell knob. Oh, hurry. Hurry, hurry, please. We? Oh, oh, the doctor sent me for some medicine. Here, please read this. Retenez cette jeune femme aussi longtemps possible. C'est de la plus grande importance pour l'avenir de Paris et même de la France. Oh, entrez, mademoiselle. Thank you. Quand vous ne pouvez plus la faire The doctor's wife stood there reading and rereading the note as though she didn't understand it. And until I thought I would scream. Oh, please, please hurry. Get the medicine. It's my mother. She may be dying. I must get back to her. Please hurry. Asseyez-vous. She pointed to a chair. Attendez. And slowly walked down the hall and closed the door behind her. I waited. And waited. And I wondered. Wondered about the time the taxi had taken to get here. About that arch that looks so familiar. And I was torn by the hundred nameless anxieties that torture you when your nearest and dearest is ill. And then I heard something that froze my blood. A telephone. A telephone clearly ringing somewhere in the house. But the doctor had said he had no telephone. That was the reason I must come all the way for the medicine. No, it, it couldn't be in this house. It, it must be next door or across the street. Of course, that's where the sound was coming from. Hello? But no. It was the voice of the doctor's wife answering the phone. Oh, no. No, what monstrous plot was this? I felt my scalp crawl with terror. My brain pounded and my head felt as though it would burst. I wanted to scream, to run out of this awful house, to run all the way across Paris to the bedside of my mother. Voilà, mademoiselle. Oh, thank you. 
Thank you. Au revoir, mademoiselle. Now, driver, please. Please, in the name of your own mother, hurry back to the hotel as fast as possible. Please. Ben oui. On fait de son mieux, mademoiselle. But my pleading was of no use. Either it was misunderstood or ignored. We crawled across Paris just as slowly as we had come. And I was certain I saw that same white arch three times. But at last we crossed the great square with the statues in it. And I knew we were close to the hotel. Please, please hurry. En fait de son mieux, voyons. Just beyond the great square, we turned up a narrow street, which shortly ended a wide circle, in the middle of which was a tall, slender monument. The driver swung around the monument and pulled up before the entrance of the hotel, reached back and opened the door. Voila. Voila, mademoiselle. I jumped out of the cab. And then I saw the sign over the entrance. It said, Hotel Ritz. Driver, you've taken me to the wrong hotel. I'm staying at the Grand Hotel Universal. Mais non, mademoiselle, je vous ai pris en Ritz et je vous dépose en Ritz. Il y a 50, I, 50 au I don't understand what you're saying, but will you please take me to the Grand Hotel Universal? Mais c'est ici que je vous ai pris et c'est ici que je vous dépose. Oh, you stupid, uh, stupid man, can't you understand? My mother is ill. You've taken more than two hours to get me to that doctor's house and back. Can't you understand? My mother is sick, perhaps dying. Dieu, mademoiselle, les affaires de mon grade pas. Donc, voici, A small group of passers-by had stopped and were listening curiously to the argument. Then they joined in and started taking sides. Everywhere I looked were foreign faces, strangers, enemies. And then, shouldering his way through the crowd, I saw a bareheaded young man in tweeds with a pipe clamped in his teeth. And before he had a chance to speak, I knew help had come. Uh, I say, having some trouble? Oh, thank heavens, you're English. All right, you are. Uh, what seems to be the matter? I told him rapidly as I could, and he paid the mulish cabby. Merci, monsieur. Popped me into another cab, and five minutes later we walked into the lobby of the Grand Hotel Universal. The manager was behind the desk. My mother, is she all right? I beg your pardon? My, my mother, Mrs. Winship in 342, is she all right? Uh, Mademoiselle must be mistaken. There is no Winship in 342. What? 342 is occupied by Monsieur Auguste Noailles, a permanent guest. Don't you remember me? I'm Cynthia Winship. Two hours ago, you put me into a taxi to go to the doctor's house for some medicine for my mother. I am afraid that Mademoiselle is mistaken. I have never seen her before in my life. Well, look here, what is this? No, listen, I swear it to you. It's just as I say. We signed the register less than three hours ago. We got in on the train from Marseille. Well, let's have a look at the register. Yes, I'll show you I'm in 342. Where is the register? It is there, Mademoiselle. You may see it for yourself. See, today's date... Fourteen guests registered, but I don't see any mademoiselle or madame Winship. Do you? No. What have you done with my mother? What have you done with my mother? Please, mademoiselle. You have done something Please, with my mademoiselle. I should not have done that. Mr. Winship, we'll get to the bottom of this. Uh, perhaps mademoiselle is mistaken. Perhaps she is registered at some other hotel. No. This is the hotel. The Grand Universal. You... You were standing there when we arrived. You handed my mother the pen with which she registered. You came to the room with the doctor. You put me in the taxi. But I assure you, mademoiselle, there are these are fantasies uh, of wait, your imagination. Wait a minute. What is, what is it? That bellboy there. He carried our baggage. He'll remember. Uh, Garçon. Uh, oui, monsieur. Vous vous souvenez à, à de porte le bagage de madame à numéro 3, 4, 2, cet après-midi? Non, monsieur. Uh, 
There were six pieces, don't you remember? You wanted to take them all, and I insisted on carrying the jewel case. It was a little red one. Oh, no, mademoiselle. C'est la première fois de ma vie que je vois, mademoiselle. This is never saw you in his life before. But this is monstrous. It's impossible. My mother is somewhere in this hotel. What have you done with her? What have you done with her? Now then, how do you feel, Miss Winship? Better, thank you. This soup was very nourishing. No, won't you have something else? Salad, a bit of roast? Thank you, no. A cup of tea, perhaps? Certainly. Gasson? Monsieur? Un tasse de terre, pour mademoiselle. Tout de monsieur. I don't know how to thank you, Mr. You realize I don't even know your name. <laughs> it's Bruce. Bruce Stanley. I'm glad to meet you, Mr. Stanley. It's a pleasure, Miss Winship. Mr. Stanley, you believe me, don't you? Of course I do, Miss Winship. We did register at that hotel. We were in room 342. I can even describe the furnishings. There was a big window that went from the ceiling to the floor. Well, every hotel room in Paris has windows like that, Miss Winship. Oh, they do? Yes. Well, in this room, the draperies were plum-colored. There was a marble table... A uh, black marble, it was, and a gilt clock. It had run down. The hand had stopped, I remember, at 20 minutes past three. The walls were covered in, in rose brocade, and the bedspread was a washed-out yellow. Oh, if I could only get into that room, you'd see I'm not making this up. I'm well, not. I'm sure you're, you aren't. Perhaps I can find a way to make them let you in the room. Oh, can you? Well, yes, I, I'm with the embassy, you know, undersecretary sort of thing. I, uh, I believe the British Empire has enough influence to change the mind of an obstinate Paris innkeeper. Then let's do it. Right away. Well, I, I'm afraid the might of Britain can't move that fast. It's past dinner time. But tomorrow we'll see. Tomorrow? But I must get into that room tonight. I have no money. Nowhere to sleep. Well, we can do nothing with the people at the hotel. You saw that. We'll just have to be patient until tomorrow. I'm, I'm sure I can find a room for you tonight in a pension near the embassy. You're so very kind. How can I ever thank you, Mr. Stanley? Well, you... You might begin by calling me Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Cynthia. Oh. Oh. What is it? I just thought of something. The doctor. The doctor? Yes, the one the hotel manager brought in to look after Mother. I still have his address somewhere here in my purse. Yes, here it is. Oh, we must go there immediately. He can tell us about Mother. Let me see... 24 bis Rouval de Grasse. Well, that's not far. It's just off the Boulevard Raspail near the Luxembourg. How long would it take to get there by taxi? Oh, about 10 minutes. But it. It took over an hour this afternoon. Voilà, monsieur, 24 bis Rouval de Grasse. Well, here we are. Yes, this is the place. Attendez, mon vieux. Uh, très bien, monsieur. The house is dark. Mm, it's quite late. Well, I don't care. We've got to find out tonight. Where is he? There at the upstairs window. Uh, Monsieur le docteur, c'est Mademoiselle Stanley. Elle veut vous questionner à propos de sa mère. Stanley, je ne connais pas Mademoiselle Stanley. He says he doesn't know you. But he must, he must. Doctor, don't you remember this afternoon? You sent me to your house for medicine for my mother. Je ne comprends pas l'anglais. He says he doesn't understand English. Oh, the liar. The dreadful liar. He does. He speaks perfect English. Hey, jeune homme, je vous conseille de ne pas déranger le repos des gens comme il faut et de vous en aller avant que je n'appelle la police. I... I'm sorry, Cynthia. Oh, Bruce. What am I going to do? 
What am I going to do? If it hadn't been for Bruce, I'm certain I should have gone out of my mind. He found a room for me at a pension near the embassy, where I spent a sleepless night of anxiety, almost beyond endurance. Bruce called for me at half past ten the next morning and took me back to the hotel. To my surprise, the attitude of the manager had changed completely. But of course, Mademoiselle may inspect room 342. We are only too glad to convince Mademoiselle that her mother is not and never was in the Grand Hotel Universal. Why, I... I uh, personally will escort you to the room. This way, please, to the ascenseur. Oh, Bruce, that terrible man. That horrible, Shh, horrible... Cynthia, Cynthia, don't let him upset you. Monsieur, troisième étage. Troisième, monsieur. Now, remember what I told you last night, Bruce. You'll see plum-colored draperies... Black marble top table, rose walls, and a gilt clock with a hand stopped at 20 minutes past three. You'll see. Yes, Cynthia. Voila, the troisième. This way, gentlemen. Uh, it was room 342 you wish to see, mademoiselle? Yes, that's right. Third door to the right. So. You see, Bruce? I know where it is. Yes, madame. Here we are. Voila. Enter, please. Now, Bruce, you shall see the yellow bedspread. Oh. Not quite the room you just described in the elevator, mademoiselle. The drapes are royal blue. No. Oh, a little dusty, I fear. I must have this room uh, renovated. You see, there is no marble top table. No. The clock, as you notice, is running. No. And right on time, it seems, the walls are not rose brocade, but yellow flowered wallpaper. No. No, my dear mademoiselle, you see how thoroughly mistaken you are. No. They had tried to make me think I was mad. They succeeded. I remembered nothing until I awoke in my aunt's house in England two weeks later, thanks to Bruce, who never left my side during those terrible days when my sanity hung in the balance. Well, that's the story, Alice. That's why I've never been able to talk about your grandmother, Winship. Oh, Mother, how horrible. Because, all these years, I've clung to the foolish hope that somehow she'd come back and tell us herself what happened. Oh, you poor dear. You may as well dispel that hope forever, Cynthia. What? Since you've at last brought yourself to discuss your mother's disappearance, I think it's time you knew the true facts. Bruce. Your mother died <gasps> 20 minutes after you left the hotel on that fool's errand for the doctor. Oh, no. She died of the bubonic plague. She'd caught it in India before she sailed. The doctor recognized the symptoms the moment he examined her. He told the hotel manager in French, in your presence. They agreed that the matter must be kept completely secret. If the news leaked out that there was a case of plague in Paris, the city would have been emptied of visitors and the exposition would have been a failure. Oh, Bruce. The conspiracy of silence began in the hotel. The bellboy was paid to claim he never saw you. The taxi driver was paid well to take you to the doctor's house by the most roundabout route. The note to the doctor's wife advised her to detain you as long as she could. And the taxi driver added his own imaginative touch by returning you to the Ritz instead of the Universal. 
I shudder to think what might have happened if I hadn't come through the Place Vendôme just then. But you didn't know. Not then. When did you find out? Next morning. By then, the conspiracy had grown to international proportions. The embassy had been advised. If the exposition was a failure, the franc would fall, the pound sterling would be affected, that sort of thing. I knew when we went back to the hotel, you would not find your plum drapes and rose-colored walls and black marble top table. And you let me go through with it? What, what could I do? I was acting under orders. I knew that the hotel had completely fumigated and redecorated the room overnight, and everything was in readiness to repudiate your story. I had to let the last act of the dreadful farce play to its dreadful end. Mother. What did they do with Mother? Her body was removed from the room less than 30 minutes after you left it. And immediately burned. Why? Why didn't you tell me this years ago? Why did you let me go on all this This... time? This is the first time you've ever mentioned your mother since then, my dear. Alice. Yes, Mother? There's a new issue of the Tatler in the library, dear. Wouldn't you like to look at it? But, Mother, I want to... Now, dear. There's a... Want to have a talk with your father? Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, has brought you The Vanishing Lady by Alexander Wolcott. Adapted for radio by Mr. Robeson. Cynthia was played by Joan Banks. Bruce was played by I Aberback. The hotel manager and cab driver were played by Ramsey Hill. The musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fewer. Next week... You are deathly afraid of snakes. And between you and a fortune, between you and escape, beyond the white jaws of a deadly cotton mouth. Next week, we escape with Irvin S. Cobb's famous story, Snake Doctor. Good night, then, until this same time next week. But again, we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And that's Escape with the Vanishing Lady, starring Joan Banks, from February 1st, 1947. Also in the cast, William Conrad, Hi Averback, and Ramsey Hill. Stick around, I'll give you our lineup for Episode 8 of the Classic Radio Theater after this short break. Next time on Episode 8 of the Classic Radio Theater, brought to you by the Bradford Exchange, we'll hear two comedy episodes of Fibber McGee and Molly, so don't miss it. To reach me and to learn more about the Classic Radio Club, visit ClassicRadioClub.com. Be sure to tune in to our next show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>